Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit Tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. I'm April Vokey, and you're listening to Anchored my chance to interview some of the most influential people involved in the fishing world today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests and learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both on and off the water. Rod Harrison carries some serious clout in the sport fishing world. As a friend, guide, and mentor to some of the most notable anglers in the fly fishing industry, Rod is a man who has had an undeniable impact on the sport as we know it. From the New Guinea black bass to the marlin junkie who helped to pioneer game fish tactics, Rod Harrison is a man who has seen it all. I was thrilled to have the opportunity to sit down with him for his first ever podcast and to learn more about this special man. I don't know why my parents sent me to a convent school. They weren't religious. Which Uh, town did you... uh, Goulburn, New South Wales, down in Canberra. And which country town were you brought up in? A place called Captain's Flat, a little out of the way <clears throat> village. So anyway, um, first thing that happened at, at uh, school was dipping the pen in the ink wells. You know, you had to fill the ink wells. That was one of the chores after school. So um, I'm naturally left-handed. So oh. you, when you're writing left-handed with an ink well, you're dragging the ink across the page and smudging. Right. So uh, I'm writing away next minute for whack. Some pruned, <laughs> old prune-faced Mother Teresa is there with a the cane. Right. So um, eventually it changes your, your mind, you know. You, okay, I, I changed my mind and hands and uh, ended up with the script of the, uh, I suppose my handwriting could have been a gynecologist, could have passed for it. <laughs> it, it it's pretty awkward nowadays, right. so... Uh, then uh, I hated school. I hated the regimentation, uh, uh, the religious force feeding. 
So I, uh, I used to sort of spend a lot of time down the river, right. become a serial truanter, or we used to call it wagging school. Oh, okay. Hooky. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I was familiar with that game. Yeah, actually. so yeah. I've become a serial. So what, how, how old are you now, Rod? I'm 72. Are you really? I am, yes. Wow, that's that's a long time ago when you were in school. Yeah, it, 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 it was, but um, those memories are pretty fresh. But, you know, you, you, if you, you're absenting yourself from school, you fall behind. So the longer I've done it, the worse I... Fell behind, but we coming from a from a big family, uh, and my dad was away all the time. He was a shearer, which uh, travelled the outback shearing sheep, and hard work, hard living, hard drinking, mm-hmm. and we never saw him. So I'm the eldest in quite a big family, and how many so, siblings do you have? Uh, a couple have passed on. We had uh, six altogether. Wow! I used to have to go and. Uh, shoot rabbits. I could skin rabbits with my fingernails and catch fish to, to uh, sub, supplement the, the, the diet, you know. Mm-hmm. Bread and dripping. Bread and... Uh, and that was uh, made a damper like flour in, in, a, in an oven. An awful substance. It's almost molasses-like called uh, golden syrup. That was dessert. Right. So occasionally we'd have rabbit. Uh, I never touch a rabbit again these days. We had a boiled, stewed, curried, bake every which way, and fish. Uh, we were a good fish around where where I was. So, time I sort of went into the workforce, uh, I didn't know much about the gear and that, but I I thought I was a fairly able hunter. I could, I could shoot, right? I could cast. I could smoke. I could drink. Yeah, <laughs> these things epitomise the hunter. Is that right? No, no, not not really. But no. it was, but it was it was uh, being in a hurry to grow up. Okay, why? Uh, big pun. Were you were the eldest in the family. I was. I was. Yes. Okay. Is that why you were in a hurry to grow up? I believe so. I I had uh, four sisters and uh, a, a younger brother, and we had hand me downs and a dirt floor where we grew up. So yeah. Uh, but, but anyway, all, all when I left school, all I wanted to do was. Be a sheriff, follow my dad's, you know, footprints, and it was a dead end job. I mean, you you've had it by fifty. Physically, you're worn out, and you you drink as if there's no tomorrow. And there's a wonderful Australian movie. I don't know if you ever saw, it's called Sunday Too Far Away, and it's a mm-hmm. take on uh, Friday. You're too tired. Saturday, you're too drunk. Sunday, you're too far away, and that epitomises the the life. Well, it sounds really tough. Yeah, well, you you, you had to be tough. Uh, so, but anyway, I uh, I talked to a uh, Dr. Water because you're out in the outback, you're on these massive sheep stations, and there's a river close by. So there's fish to catch and pigs to shoot, and yeah. So that kind of was about all I I knew. But um, while all that was happening, I think you hone. The skills you learn stealth and you learn the observing fish and animal behaviour, how they react, and and uh, you can sort of figure them out. You know, they're not as smart as people. Right. Well, how uh, old were you when you started fishing? Probably about ten. Seriously. Were you self-taught? Yeah. Yeah. 
Did you fish to escape school or to feed the family? Was there one? Uh, that was- a little bit of both. Uh, when you're, uh, you should be at school and you're down on the river. Hmm. You know, the next logical step is 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 to go fishing. Right. Uh, but but then you know there was the supplementing the, the so everyone everyone could have a change from bread and dripping. Okay, so let me just get uh let me get on to the fishing part of this then. So you started fishing really quite young. Quite young, yeah, yeah. And then when did you start to go work with your father shearing sheep? Uh, I was about fourteen. Oh, so but, it was still quite young. Yeah, yeah, the legal age to to leave school. Did you finish school? No. No. What grade were you in when you left? Um, fifth, fifth, eight, eight grade, grade eight. Okay. Yeah. So then what happens? Well, I, I went out in the shearing sheds and, and uh, learned to shear sheep. And uh, my father was a kindly man, but but he was a dreamer and he, and he liked his booze too much. And he started collecting my paychecks. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. So I soon got sick of that. Right. And see you later. And then I uh, went out on my own, still shearing sheep, mm-hmm. but it had the the life there. I mean, it was big money for a lot of a lot of sweat and dust and you know uh, hard, just hard yakka. Mm-hmm. But the money was there. Well, before that, we used to go uh, trout fishing. One of my first experiences was down in Lake Yukonbeen. And they had a golden era back in the in the sixties, when they were filling up, you know, and the, the new ground being covered, fish just eating, 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 and six and eight pound rainbow trout were, weren't weren't rare, not by any means. Mm-hmm. Average would have been four pound, easy. So I sort of learned to fly fish. I had an, uh, one of my um, grandfather's old rods. Well, I had uh, I had a grandfather who was. Uh, Straight back, bristle moustache Englishman, who who was on uh, in the Royal Navy, and he was on a boat called the HMS Rodney, which sort of what you named after? Yeah, yeah. Put the Bismarck on the bottom, but he had a old cane fly rod, and gave it to me, and you know I didn't have a, an idea what I was doing, and then I had another uncle who used to live over at Mossman. Oh, that's not far away from Just across the bay here, yeah, right. yeah. So during the school holidays and, and when, whenever I could, I used to come down here and then uh, jump on the ferries and we'd go fishing. And we would, uh, a couple of other kids from the vicinity where I was sort of living there, we sort of ganged up and fishing was one of the things to do. And uh, you would, uh, as the ferries pulling in, we'd be over the rail onto the jetty before the plank came down you'd have the deckhand say you little blood you know bloody. Yeah. <laughs> but never catch us but we used to catch brim and leather jackets and uh, john dory and so that was always a little bit of learning of learning about the salt and the, the fresh water was um we used to take our bikes to the railway station queen Bean, and from in the guards van, there was a guards at the back used to signal the driver all aboard and just keep you know, track of everything. But as long as you had a platform ticket, you could do that. And we knew some of the guards. We'd throw our bikes on there, uh, try and call the Kuma Mail, go down there and then um, 
from there we'd ride down to Adaminabe, <clears throat> which is a pretty fair ride, it's about 12, 14 mile, I guess. Mm -hmm. And then uh, sometimes we'd, we'd be able to throw bikes on the mail truck and then go down, he'd drop us off at a place called O'Neill's Bay, and we'd go down there. And you just wade out, the, 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 the fish were just, you don't have to cast real far, we just slop. It was an old waxed line. and. Okay, so this is on the old cane ride. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, cool. How old were you at this point? Oh, about 13, 14. Okay, so let me get the timeline straight here. So you go to work with your father, and you start shearing sheep. Yeah. You get to fish and hunt in the outback. Mm-hmm. How long do you stay shearing sheep with your father? Uh, about eight years, all told. Okay, and at this point, were you in the fishing industry at all, or were you just no, around no, like no, no? I, I was <laughs> just uh, uh, pursuing the habit. We we just you know you get a taste for it, and I, I, at some stage or other, it got in my blood. It was a, a necessity initially, but uh, I found it very you know uh, addictive. So, what about <laughs> the moment when you decided I just can't do this shearing sheep anymore? Well, I've ended up with um, a wife and two kids. Mm. We were both quite young, yeah, and she was still a teenager and um, had to get married. Yeah, that and, happens. <laughs> uh, but, you know, she was an excellent mother and I've got two wonderful sons, broad-soldered sons who I'm right. very proud of. But I had to get a job. Okay, because, I mean, it, it paid well, but you weren't home, is that how it was? That's correct, yes, okay. yes, exactly. So what was the job you were going to do? Well, I came to Sydney, uh, I thought, a policeman, I'll try, I'll try, try out for that. Why? So, what was it about being a policeman that was so appealing to you? I don't know, I didn't like them. That's why you wanted to be one? No, 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 it wasn't, well, it wasn't a power trick. It was just sort of, um, I don't know, just something different. It seemed a, a, a job, you know. I just um, then that was the first one I tried. It was a, a government job. People were saying, get a government job. So what did you do? Well, I came in and applied, and it was in a, a uh, you had to do exams. They measure you, you know. I just got through the, the height, and... Uh, the exams started off with arithmetic. It was basic sixth grade stuff, I guess, and then a dictation test. So they'd recite something to you to write it out. Right. So I failed, and I just thought, I'll stuff this. I'll, I'll uh, yeah, maybe try something a bit easier. Anyway, because uh, I couldn't spell uh, the I before E except after C, all that. That, that used to really flummox me right. badly. And uh, I was just leaving, and the old Sarge said, uh, what do you do, son? And I said, uh, I'm a shearer, which back then had a rite of passage. I mean, you were a tough... Hard-working. Hard-working, yeah. Strong, hard Strong, guy, yeah. yeah, yeah. So he said, look, why don't you come back tomorrow? We need boys from the bush. I said, all right. But he said, now the... Dictation test is the um, uh, editorial from the Sydney Morning Herald. I cocked my head and I thought, yeah, hmm. hang on, this is. Anyway, so the next day I turned up and I'm one of these punk rock rockers with the tattoos all over them. I've got bloody things here, <laughs> things there, written all over my arms and rolling my sleeves down. <laughs> so I, I passed. Anyway, uh, 
then they used to put you at a station where there were some facilities if you wanted to uh, further your better yourself so on so I got plonked right in the middle of the, the city and uh, at a place called Regent Street it was a bit of a gulag some of those city stations they put the people who hit hurdles and so anyone of any rank is there for a reason but anyway so I went I uh, the technical college Sydney Technical College was just down the road so I went down there and done English so I learned about nouns and adjectives, verbs, subjects, predicates, prepositions, blah, blah, blah. On your own accord? Yeah. So how old were you now? Were you in your mid-twenties, almost? Yeah, I was in uh, 23, 22, 23. Okay, so are you still fishing at this point now, or are you just too busy with being a cop? No, no, it opened up a, a whole new world. The place I used to have to pound a beat there for a little while... They used to throw you out in the middle of the night, and this is a really bad, nasty area. A lot of sleaze, a lot of, you know, and uh, cops go around in numbers now, but we used to just walk at two o'clock in the morning. On your own? On your own, yeah. Had a gun. I remember the first couple of nights I found all this illegal activity going on. There was a, a pub trading after hours, and then there was a... A brothel going and then a few other things. So I, I race back to the station <laughs> and the old Sarge looks up, he's reading the newspaper and he said, what do you want, you're back, what are you, what are you doing back here? And I said, oh, I found this, this, and I go through this big bloody list of uh, things in my notebook, I've taken the time. And he looked up and he says, so if and what? And I said, well, you know, we're, they're breaking the law. Said, don't worry about it, son. There's other people who do that. Oh, <laughs> so uh, I thought, hang on, there, there's there's another layer here that I don't understand. You know, it's uh, but anyway, along these places there were about there's five fishing tackle shops oh. and four gun shops, and I'm in heaven. I'm, no doubt. Yeah. So one of them, I ran into a, a fellow named. Jack Erskine, Jack passed on a little while ago last year, wonderful man, and he opened doors for me. He was in the IGFA Hall of Fame. He's probably the most famous Australian angler ever, you know, uh, really on first day in terms of a lot, a lot of people. And uh, he, a friend of his was starting up a fishing magazine. So I thought, oh, I'll try this, you know, um... I woke up in the morning, the sun was shining, the sea was flat, and I thought, oh, I'll go fishing. Yeah, and that was about the standard of the syntax. Right. But I kept going and, you know, cut out the adverbs and uh, a few other things. And The guy who failed his dictation test, and you decided that you were going to be a writer for one of the magazines. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. did so, you get published? I, I, yes, I did, I did. Um, did you have a following at this point as an angler, or no. was it just some young guy that they thought they'd no, be No, just, just some young dude who was annoying the bejesus out of them. And <laughs> <laughs> You're very persistent, aren't you? I think so, yeah. Yeah. If, 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 if I, yeah, yeah, my, my, my wife was, a, was, yeah, she was dropped in. Gorgeous, you know, and I, I kept it, kept at her yeah. and at her and at her. That, and this, not only that, but the Sunday Herald, the 
going to class to become a, a better writer. It just it seems like you decide that if you're going to do it, you're going to do it right. Yeah, but there's lots of other omissions in my life too. Right. So you sort of look at something and work out what you you know is it worth it. And um, uh, but I um, I've just sort of messed around with outdoors. I I, I think it's being part of a natural world. Let's get back to your article. So you submit your article, and what happens? Well, I, I, I knew the editor through Ron Calcutt. Uh, Jack Erskine was uh, a leading light. He was, you know, uh, tinkered with tackle and done up drags, and, you know, he, he, he was just the, the man. He was just a tackleologist that had a, had a wonderful understanding of machinery and a darn good angler too. And uh, one of his associates uh, started up a magazine to get away from this kill it and fill it type deal, you know, uh, fish are too valuable to use just the once, so that mm. that's sort of one thing that stuck in my my head. Yeah, that's very forward thinking for back then. Back then, yeah. Well, he, he actually, Ron Calcutt was his name, and he's passed on too. So he wrote some very prophetic uh, things, you know, are we ready for this, this change of philosophy, this uh, fishing for the you know, and then go and put it back. And, but nowadays, if you kill a lot of fish, you're going to be, uh, they'll pillory you, pillory you, you know. Yeah. People, the, it's gone full circle. So anyway, I, I, I wrote this story about my outback experiences. <clears throat> Got a lot of very big fish in the river there, rivers out there, and uh, not a lot of skill to catch them. You just throw a, a dead rabbit on a hook and tie the line to the tree. Oh God! That sounds so barbaric. Okay. Yeah. So, so well, you know, fishing for what with um, a, a fish called a Murray cod. Oh, the Murray cod. Yeah, yeah. of course. Okay. So, so now it's an iconic uh, species. Right. And um, yeah, so I wrote the story, and it it was published, and uh, wow, my God, here we go. And the worst thing that happened with that, or the best thing that happened, I got a huge head. So I, I, I thought, shit, here, I've arrived. I'm Hemingway. Yes. <laughs> okay. So I wrote this next one, and the editor, Rod Kalko was, red line through it, just says, this is crap, you can do better. Oh, good for him. So I was absolutely shattered. Yeah, uh-huh. I bet. <laughs> uh-huh. so, You're not Hemingway after all. <laughs> <laughs> no. So, so anyway, I had another look at it, and... Uh, uh, you know, you're trying to write or project your persona uh, through your words, and it's not who you are. I'm trying to be airy fairy and use these uh, like uh, cliches. I was stupid enough to use cliches. I hate them now, really? unless I can make my own up. But anyway, I kind of kept going, kept going, and uh, eventually graduated to writing the back page uh, column. For that um, magazine. And how long did it take you to get to that point? About five, five years. And you're still a cop at this point. Oh, yes, yes, yes. So at this stage, would you consider yourself fully immersed in the industry or were you just a writer who wrote a column? Uh, no, no, I was at the tipping point. I, I didn't like the way uh, police work was going and, you know, the demands made. And the, and the shift in society too. 
yeah, more rights. For, I, I was going to change the world, you know, initially. Uh, but, you know, on the basis of, yeah, more rights for wrongdoers, criminals have more rights than their victims. Mm-hmm. I could see that imbalance happening. And there are a lot of, you know, you become disenchanted. Right. I'm not going, I'm not, you know, the realisation hits you, okay, you're not going to change the world. Uh, you can put a few people in, in jail mm-hmm. who deserve to be there, but I'd throw the key away. And, uh, but I stayed with it long enough to get my kids through high school. And Did you ever make that step away from the police force and into the fly fishing industry as your complete support system? Yeah, I did. Well, I started to, you know, uh, uh, get contributed checks, which were fairly insignificant. But then mm-hmm. I, I started to, you know, people were talking to me and acknowledging me and I wasn't quite sure what that was, you know, being a, a little bit um, suspicious of... People, I thought, you know, what's this bastard want? <laughs> what do you want from me? Everybody wants something, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I get it, I do. So let's talk about the fishing industry now. When I moved to Australia, I wanted to find the timeline. I'm totally focused and dedicated to timelines. I love history. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I started to dig back. And the further back I went, even all the way back to Peter Morris, when I podcasted Peter, he said, Rod Harrison. And then... You know, I start reading Trey Combs' book, and all of a sudden I see you in every freaking chapter. <laughs> and then I start looking up Dean Butler. Well, who taught? Because people say, you need to go talk to Dean. Well, who taught Dean? Okay, I've got Rod Harrison. Now all of a sudden I'm going on Marlin Charters, and I'm hearing about Rod Harrison. And I tried to search beyond you, Rod, and I couldn't find somebody beyond you. I couldn't oh, find somebody yeah, ahead of you. Yeah, there were... And maybe it's just an internet thing, or maybe the stories have slowly died off. But that's why I want to talk to you. I want to find out when you got into fly fishing, mm-hmm. how, and who was there before you. Help me with my timeline. Right. Okay. Okay. Well, we had, we had a east coast west coast thing happening in Australia, oceans apart, you know, and uh, better not rivalry, but they had it. I mean, there's a uh, thousands of miles of coast there and, and not even a million people there at the time and yeah whereas here you had to work pretty hard so fly fishing I, I become fairly fluent with uh, lures and and uh, and used to see fly fishing when he used to go down to you can be right our bikes down there as kids and they, you know I was impressed with the artistry of it and waving backwards and forwards and catching this fish these fish and uh, you know it was case of monkey seeing monkey do I guess mm-hmm. no one ever heard, but I, I I watched them and then learned and gradually put it together and um, who was that who was who was who were you watching uh, just fly fishing in general but this was on freshwater systems in freshwater yeah d- down in the snowy mountains not in the saltwater yet no no not yet but I I I was catching trout down there we were all, almost like a I don't know if you can do dapping in, in in lakes, but we'll wade out there and just go slap a big cordulate pattern down, bang, bang it down, and just give it a little shake, bang the tip of a rod. Right. Yeah, so th- this was in, in water. Uh, there was lots of fish there, you know. I didn't have a reel there for a little bit of time, just had the old silk fly line running through the runners, 
I just let it go and... You're hand lining it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's classic. Yeah. <laughs> With a silk line and a K-Rod. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Okay. Yeah. But anyway, so when I came to Sydney, uh, all these tackle shops and Jack Erskine, and there was already a cadre of saltwater fly fishermen here. Oh, there were? Oh, okay. absolutely, yes, yeah, yeah. I'm glad, really glad I've got the opportunity to sort of timeline some of that. Mm-hmm. There was Bill Fitch, um, who was a father figure, he used to get the kids together and teach them how to rig and tie their knots. Uh, uh, Clyde Kelton was another one. Um, Mick Barton, uh, um, Ken Sykes, these are just names from the past. Fred Phillips, uh, Gordon Dunlop, who I, I had to... I Gordon today. <laughs> Gordon was, yeah, he was he was there. Yeah. A marvellously talented fly fisherman. I could never work out with Gordon. Bloke half my size can cast twice as far. <laughs> He's got great timing. Yeah, wonderful bloke. And um, Paul Barker up at Newcastle, Bob Longley. So they all pro- preceded me. They were active, and over in the West there was Ron Pearson and Max Garf, two very, very... Uh, Max uh, caught cobia and Spanish mackerel off the rocks. and mm-hmm. no, ate... on the fly? Yeah, on fly. No, Abs- off the rocks. Absolutely. Oh, my gosh, I want to learn how to do that. Absolutely, yeah. Ma- Max passed on. Ron's in not the best of health these days. He had a stroke just, just recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, I ended up, you know, uh, wanting to learn more so got to know Max we'd done a round Australia trip uh, fished with Pearson we sailed a, a boat out to the out of archipelagos there had a sailboat just fishing and cruising right. and oh that sounds amazing when yeah. do you think that saltwater fly fishing was really pioneered in Australia uh, very very early 70s uh, late 60s uh, Max Garf and Ron Pearson were the two pioneers in terms of big, serious fish being caught on, on fly. Got it, okay. Uh, so over here, it was uh, Bill Fitch and all his acolytes, uh, Clyde Kelton, uh, Mick Barton, Ken Sykes, Fred Phillips, and Gordon was in there somewhere right. too. Yeah. So uh, I'm in Sydney at this stage and uh, having a fill. I'm not actually a fill. I was quite happy with lure fishing, but I could sort of see this other stuff was a was a challenge. When you were writing for the magazine, were you writing as a con- conventional gear angler? I was. I was, yes. Okay. And after about a, a year into it, I decided to start to, to get into fly. Right. And uh, But couldn't really... Fish it. I wasn't very good. I was pretty untidy, and and uh, but I thought I had the fish nous as much in as much as stealth and and what to do when you when you you hook one. And well, what were you fly fishing for? Had you been fishing for marlin at this point? No, no, no. God, no, 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 no. No, it was salmon, tailor. I used to catch uh, skipped out tuna, bonito between the between the heads. Right. Uh, and uh, it just kind of went from went from there, and then um, that was in about by about the mid seventies. I was competent enough to to 
catch fish, mm-hmm. but nothing, no, nothing, no uh, showmanship in the in the delivery. So they're pretty sloppy, but the the fish ate, and it sort of, I think it cements the 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 lesson that you know presentation over substance any day. So how long did you stay a cop for then? I stayed twenty years, so I could get out with some entitlements. Okay, so during this time though, you were really starting to dive into the fishing world. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Did yeah. you guide part time while you were a cop? A little, little bit. Did you yeah. ever leave your job as a cop to be a guide? Yeah. Not specifically a guide, but to to, I stayed in long enough to 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 get out with a reasonable handshake. Uh, you do twenty years, you you, uh, and also to get my kids off, uh, you know, off my hands. My uh, marriage was kind of it had broken down by then. Uh, my fault. Too busy fishing, and you know, I used to take the boys fishing with me so you know it wasn't any sort of neglect of family but right. a wife left at home and I don't blame her she hung in there a, a long time and you know sometimes I wish we were back together but time moves on and and we're, we're better friends now than when we were married oh that's nice so yeah uh, so you can be a bit you know introspective about all that and mm-hmm. no enemies we just saw so um I was looking for something to do, and and, and guiding seemed a, a natural extension. Yeah, try out your people skills. Right. Um, so where did you start guiding? Well, uh, about um, I ran into a, a, another guy, and we and he was a cameraman. We started to do a series of uh, DVDs or VHS uh, videotapes. Right. We went out to Lord. We'd, we'd done half a dozen, and they seemed to be they were very, very uh, loose productions. But enough fishing in them to to uh, to get a you know get an interest level there. And we weren't force feeding brands or no, no commercial right. pitch. Uh, De- Dean Butler came out. Uh, to Lord Howe Island on a boat that I was working on. Now, just pe- people who don't know who Dean Butler is, he is one of the most famous marlin guides in Abs- the world. Absolutely, yep. Yeah. I hear people rant and rave about Pre- him. Preeminent, yeah. And he is the official guide and the only guide for... Is it Tom Evans? Tom Evans, that's right, yeah, yeah. Which says a lot. Yeah. When Dean came to you, was he a guide at this point who wanted to learn more? Just a kid. Okay, so what happened? Just a, a raw kid from Melbourne. Okay. Uh, I was uh, running a boat, uh, mainly working the deck, like a party boat. Uh, six lines in the water. You run across a school of yellowfin tuna. The whole pattern would be gang-banged. And <laughs> we were catching, like, enormous yellowfin tuna, kingfish, yellowtail. And you were the captain of the boat? No, no, no. I was, I was just the, the, the... I liked the... Down the lower level. So you're a deckie? A deckie, yeah. Oh, cool, okay. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, anyway, Dean was uh, uh, one of the people that come along on a charter, just a kid then. And, uh, you know, he just, we, we got to know each other pretty well. And uh, then uh, I started into this DVD stuff and give him a hoy, hey, come on, you know, get your ass in the gear, we're going. And he'd come along as an offsider, a gopher, 
and um, but had an enormous natural ability. And, and I think the main thing I, I could see in Dean was he could look at something and see something that other people couldn't. Like how? How so? Like he'd see a fish or he'd see a bird or some other feature there and he'd put it all together, bang, that's a scenario, that's on. Right. I can make that happen. So he was fishy, he could just tell. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, see, with his, his big talent with uh, Tom Evans was in teasing. Dean doesn't run the boat, as far as I know. He does the deck. But right. teasing fishers, bill fishers, is critical. And what he does is have four or five live baits ready, and the fish takes one, and the fish might swim away 70 metres. He just pitch a live bait on its nose, boom, give it another one, and in the finishing, tease them up the scuppers just about. To get ready for the fly fisher in the that, That's cast. correct, yeah, yeah, just sort of get the fish primed and it'll throw caution to the wind. Yeah, now, for people who have never done any sort of marlin fishing before, I don't think that they quite understand just how chaotic it is. Uh, myself, spending this last winter trying ruthlessly to mm, get a fish, mm. It's exhausting. It's a lot of work. All, you'll have hours of nothing and then, you know, a couple of minutes of just chaos. Absolutely, yeah. Can you maybe walk through a little bit about marlin fishing just for my listeners? A lot of my listeners are, are freshwater anglers. Yeah. They associate marlin fishing as <laughs> trolling a bait and then a fish comes up and you cast and they find it rather boring. And I'm trying to explain to them that there's a whole lot more talent than just that in marlin I, fishing. I, I, absolutely, yeah. It was a team effort. Uh, I read it out of a book, firstly. I was the first Australian to catch billfish on fly. Oh, which book did you read? Uh, I think it was uh, Lefty Craze. Okay. Oh, it's all... The pieces are start, starting to come yeah, together. Yeah, Okay. And so you read it in a book. And... read it in a book about teasing, yeah. Yeah. So I, I was up in New Guinea at the time, and, and uh well, you know, the stages were there. But, but anyway, in answer to your question, you have to use uh, a, a teaser, which is a euphemism for a piece of fish. You can uh, rig it up, but you need to reinforce it because those bills sort of dis- knock pieces out of it. So you used to stitch it up with um, a, a, a sort of a twine. You have swimming baits. You could have uh, skip baits, yeah. uh, that type of thing. But anyway, do the miles and... and uh, it's a team effort. There's a skipper who's got to decide which way he drives the boats, looking at his instruments and, and so on. Then down on the deck there, there's um, uh, the angler, of course, who's got his gear ready to make a cast. The rules are pretty uh, stringent. You can't cast while the boat is under power. But So when a fish comes up, uh, it's attractive by the teaser, they'll let him take, take a bite. And sometimes they're hot to trot. Sometimes they need a little bit more encouragement. So you eventually build it up as kind of a fishing foreplay, for want of a better way of putting it. And then the, the fish will throw caution to the wind. Once it gets a taste and then it's whipped out of a, its mouth, it's like a taking a dog off a, a bone off a hungry dog. And, uh, of course, you know... Then the fish is manoeuvred into position. Everything's pulled out of water simultaneously. Uh, the boat's out of gear. The angler makes the cast. So, so the the captain, in my experience anyway, the captain is he has his eye on on what's happening, and he's yeah. he's there to shout instruction. 
That's right. And yeah. he's there to get that boat out of gear because if a fish is caught while in gear, it's it's not trolling. No, right. no, that, that's correct. And it's got to be on regulation tackle too. It, I think it devalues uh, uh, the currency of it all if someone uh, fishes a straight through leader. It's, yeah. it's line class. I think there. my line's been like thirty pound, or my tip has been thirty pound, and yeah. even that can be considered quite high. Right? Yeah, like yeah, twenty yeah, usually. Yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah, but. The I think there's a thirty pound class for Australia, but uh, elsewhere it's uh, stick within the, in the in the within the rules. Well, let's but talk. It, let me ask you a couple of questions about this because you're the perfect person to ask. So when I've gone, I've had the captain doing all that, and then I've got the deckhands, and then you know one's manning the live bait or not live bait, but the teaser. The teaser. The other yeah. one's maybe getting the daisy chain out of the way. Yeah. And yeah. I'm there ready to cast, and. I, when I first started marlin fishing, I would have fought tooth and nail about IGFA, about the IGFA. I just, my mentality was, I don't care about setting a record. Put on 100-pound leader, because I'm going to, or, you know, tip it, because I want to land this fish regardless of, of well, IGFA. Well, yeah, there's two philosophies there. But then I started reading, and I started reading Trey Combs' book, and I started to understand the sportsmanship in the IGFA, maybe you yeah. can elaborate a little bit on that. Well, it, it, it's two trains of thought. If you want to catch the fish, well and good. But, but of course, you know, if you want to claim a record or, or you're religiously regimented into that regime, okay, you do it by the book. Mm-hmm. I, I don't have, I'm not judgmental either way, uh, but I think in, in, in terms of uh, actually ticking the box, you're better off just fishing the damn thing. Catch the fish, let it go. Right. You've caught a billfish on fly without going into these parameters. And if uh, you're fishing for records, well, well and good. You you have to abide by the by you know the the what, all the infrastructure and all the da 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 da. But if you're not fishing for records, do you think that it's important? I I have no problem with it. I've done it myself. I want to go fishing with you then, because <laughs> I'm going to put a hundred pound tippet. Yeah, I haven't landed one yet, so I just would really love to get one. Mm. I'm not going to. I think to to just stay true to what my journey has been. I will continue to stick with the ICFA regulations. No, well, it's it's it's, it's, a, it's getting into the philosophical. I think really. So what happens with Dean then? He comes to you, and oh, we we just sort of he. he Work with his uh, father who had a business where I live at near Bribey Island, and we just started go going fishing. Then I was I got into uh, doing these uh, DVDs. It seemed to be a good idea at the time, and but I, I was pretty hopeless in front of a camera. You know, I used to uh, I could have been in front of a damn firing squad. I think it was pretty. <laughs> but, but anyway, people forgive me for that, and you know, and. Um, Anyway, we, we went over to Lord Howe Island to do a uh, program there. Right. And Dean was, um, uh, he was going, we'd already done some offsiding. And Peter Morse uh, was, I was starting to, he touched base with me and he was just starting to get going then. Right. So I said, look, why don't you come over? Uh, so we'd done a program over there and... Uh, I remember we were cleaning up there one afternoon and all the... We had a pretty big good day's fishing and all the blood and guts was going down the scuppers and uh, next minute Dean races past with a fly rod. I said, hey, where are you going? You haven't finished cleaning up. 
I used to be pretty hard on him. Right, good. And uh, didn't say nothing, it's my fly rod. What the bloody hell are you doing with that? Next minute it's bent over in the reel screaming. He got a bloody yellowtail kingfish, about 25 pound. Oh. So then he just, uh, next time I saw him, he picked up a fly rod and he just made it work. Very he was a natural then? Natural, yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. And Peter... Uh, the cameraman that I was working with, he was very autocratic and he had to do it his way and he used to, uh, an only child, and he would f- edit the thing, then hand it to me and then say, look, write the voiceover for it. That's not how you do it. I'd done my homework, I know how to, you know, and that's not, you know. Then uh, we started to... Uh, i done a few voiceovers, and there's nothing wrong with my narration, nothing whatsoever. But he was sort of, you know, we just didn't get on. He was chipping away at my self-esteem. And uh, in the finish, I decided, I'm right, I can't work with him. So uh, no more filming at this point then? No, no, I'd sort of had enough. Then uh, him and Peter started to work, and they were a bit more compatible. Okay. And uh, they'd done a television series, and... Uh, but that's when Peter kind of came in. Uh, we'd been at it for some time before he... Uh, uh, very good very good angler. Yeah. Uh, but you guys were there. We were there. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk a little bit about where you go from here then. So you spent a lot of time in New Guinea. Yeah. Fishing for, am I right in saying, the black, black bass? Black bass, that's correct. Yeah. Oh, God, Rod, i got to tell you, that is so high on my list. <laughs> it gives me shivers just thinking about it. So t- tell me about that. How did you get started doing the Well, it just bass? seemed a natural progression. You're sort of constantly searching. You know, I may have been searching for things to do with with my life, you know, a shearer, then a policeman, I didn't like that, and then a writer, I'm, I'm liking that, so how many phases you can put in, so fish uh, are pretty well the same, you know, river fish, trout, uh, fish around the coastal fringes, and then going overseas, you're constantly looking for that, that something, but, you know, Sometimes when you find it, it, it it didn't, you know what you what you got back at home was was better. But you you nevertheless you make the journey. Yeah. So there's this uh, <coughs> story about these big, and they're not bass. They're actually a snapper. They belong to the snapper family. Oh, okay, that's interesting. They're a relative of the Kibera snapper. Okay. In the Caribbean, but they break fly lines, and they and that that um, that become compelling, you know. An uncatchable fish. They say that they are their hardest fighting fish in the world. Is that yeah, true? Yeah, yeah, they, they they are. And I remember when I, I first took uh, Lefty up there. Right. Oh, you took Lefty there. Oh yeah. yeah. Ah, I love when all the pieces come together. Okay. Okay. Well, let let, let me digress for for a couple of minutes. Uh, Max Garf said, "Look, if you want to get on a, uh, um, on in the world of fly fishing, here's the man, Lefty Cray." So I said, oh, okay. So I wrote him a letter. Dear Mr. Cray, um, I'm from Australia. Um, some good fish down here. If uh, you want to come down and prepare to rough it a bit, yeah. Uh, we'll, uh, yeah. So I didn't expect it, but a letter came back. 
From lefty. Yeah. Saying. Saying, wow, when? <laughs> Had you read his, his uh, fish on billfish yet? No. Okay, okay. Had uh, you been marlin fishing yet? Uh, yes, yes. Okay. Yes, I'd caught, I'd caught, caught uh, marlin on fly. And, but anyway, uh, down he arrives. So he came with us. We just flew around the country. I'd sort of, we were doing DVDs then and making enough money out of them. Uh, to 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 be able to pay for things, you know, and yeah, contouring flights off, and was fly fishing starting to pick up now? It certainly time? was. It certainly was. Yeah. Okay. So we're up in New Guinea, and uh, I said, "Hey, okay, you're you're the guest. First, you know, visitors' privilege." But how did you even hear about New Guinea? Oh, I sort of, you know, there was a couple of people that had been up there, and. Uh, these stories about these unstoppable fish, you know, nothing fires the imagination, and conveniently it was on our back doorstep, but but an uncatchable fish in an Ongo Bongo river, and headhunters and shrunken heads and <laughs> sav- plume savages. Whoa! It's, it it's sounds a, adventurous. It's boy's own stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So anyway, we're up there and. Um, uh, I said, you know, where you go, you know, no, 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 no. And I could see a twinkle in his eye, he thought, yeah, we were jerking his chain. Because we, we did, we did, we, he, and he's a really good sport, he took at everything and we uh, threw at him and come back with uh, with a bit more. <laughs> Wonderful company. And um, anyway, so eventually he, he uh, I'd made a cast of a plug rod, that's right, crank, 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 and I'm using 50 pounds straight, through and I've pulled one out at thirty pounds, about that big, you know. And I could see the he's locking hook. So he threw the fly <laughs> right out, strip, strip, and whack, it hooked up and he's trying to break it and then he showed me a hand later on that you'd swear he'd grabbed a Jedi sword, had this Whoa. big line burn across it. But the next one he got he whipped the line around the back of a reel, quick as a flash. What a good trick that is. Just increase the drag. Just pull a line from the front of a rail around the back. So anyway, uh, he's on record as strongest fish he's ever. So we we made a believer out of him. I heard that. I was just fascinated to hear that that was you. Yeah. So you're the man behind the New Guinea black bass. Well, I've been accorded. I mean, that's not what I'm saying. But if others want to say it, well, I'll. I'll, I'll stick my head <laughs> into the hat, yeah. Now, what about Trey? Because when I read his book, in his book, he had mentioned that you guys also went on a trip. Yeah, yeah. So, what was that all about? Tell me about your trip. I know there's a big story that went behind with that. Oh, yeah. Of... Well, that was uh, for Dogtooth Tuna. Right. Yeah, and uh, bad seas, you know, blowing uh, uh, sharks eating fish. Trey had a you know, a massive fish on, 80-something pound it was, and right at the last minute a little rat whale of that big come up and bit, bit a piece out of a tail. Uh. Uh, but, uh, yeah, Trey was a very... I'd, I'd actually gone and fished in Mexico with him. We, uh, <coughs> Ed Rice, <coughs> pardon me, was doing ISE, like, like International... <clears throat> Sportsman's Expositions. Oh, yeah. I, I uh, actually worked for them once. Oh, okay. In California? Right, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, uh, does um, San Mateo? 
or Sacramento. That was Sacramento. Yeah. Well, I'd done a season with Ed. I was doing presentations on Australia. Right. Great. Uh, and got to know Trey, and then Ed shouted me a trip on a chart, Marlon Fly. Right. And uh, I fished with Trey there. We had a good time. We were out in the rubber ducky because it was a rotation thing on the deck, uh, but the seas were that flat, so if you wanted to jump in the ducky, you could go for your... Yeah. After you're already hooked up. No, no, no. Go out. We were actually hooked Marlon out of the ducky. Just the two of you in the boat? Uh, and a crewman. Oh, okay, yeah, good, yeah. good. It's hard when there's two of you. When when my husband, when Charles and I go out, just the two of us, <clears> I'm I'm ending up pulling the daisy chain and trying to get my rod ready to make. Oh, cast. okay, yeah, it's yeah. Very no, difficult. You need another another hand. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, we, it, it it worked anyway. Yeah. So you got some. Yeah, yeah, and um, that was yeah, that was um, yeah, was, that was that was an experience. You learned learned a lot. You know, I was. Uh, Rooming with Jerry Seam, the from guy Sage. from Sage. Yeah. <clears throat> and down, uh, we have trouble in translating uh, with, with accents. There's <laughs> a bit of a roll there one time, and I'm down walking along to our cabin, got a hand on each wall, just steady. Yeah. And just as uh, Jerry opens the door, and my hand slipped into the fingers into the door jam. Oh, no. So he's trying to close the door. And he don't know what I, what the hell I'm hollering about. <laughs> so the thing says, close the fucking door. <laughs> and he's cold. <laughs> don't make me laugh because I'll turn it, I'll have a coughing fit with this cold. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's hilarious. So he, your fingers are stuck. He's trying to open the door He's trying to the close shut. the door shut. And a big, strong man too, yeah. Jerry. <laughs> Coming up, Rod and I discuss commercialization, braided lines, and his latest book. To find my reading list and reviews, as well as books written by guests of Anchored, be sure to go to www.aprilvokey.com and look for the reading list tab. Do you think that the industry has changed a lot? It, 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 it has, yeah. yeah. How, how do you feel in the saltwater world it's changed? Well, it's become commercial, commercialized. You know, the, the, the media is controlled by the people in the tackle industry there's a few you know big hitters in the tackle industry and uh to to get on get along you have to be a, you have to kowtow to them a little bit if you want a sponsorship or uh, you know uh money to get a tv thing mm-hmm. there so you've got to draw the line between bona fide you, you probably know this better than me yeah it's hard but, to find sponsors who will let you stay true to your integrity and to yourself ex- exactly and we had a a couple here like there was a series called a river somewhere right uh those guys weren't good anglers but that's not the point they love what they're doing yeah i, I like robson green I, he hams it up, he belittles fishing a bit, <laughs> acts the fool, but I find it entertaining. Yeah. And and the tackle industry these days seems to be uh, have a predisposition that this rod, this reel, whatever else, will make you a better angler. If you haven't got it in the first place, you ain't going to do it with what they're force-feeding you with. And all the articles, magazine stuff... It's all the publication is predicated on advertising leads, good pictures. So you you 
the writing is pedestrian, whereas years ago, you know, the writing had to sort of hit you between the eyes. Wow, you know, I used to love, um, I tried to read St Grey, all those big rainbow trout and you, you know, but uh, uh, like, didn't like him. Hemingway was a very tight writer, but then uh, Haight Brown, I, I loved his writing. Good, yes. And uh, there's a few out of the states that were very good. Uh, <clears throat> Dirac, I, yeah. li- I like his stuff, but it's a bit narrow in it as much as, you know, you've got to get out of the trout streams, mate, get on the get on the flats with something that'll run a bit of stringy out there. And and the young fellows have got the idea, they've got to wear badges, they've got to get there in a hurry, uh, blow their own trumpet, and they don't understand the the, the role of uh, third-person credibility. You can't say it, let someone else say it. And you have to pay your dues for that. Do you think that social media is helping to keep it true? Or no. do you think it's the opposite? Opposite. I'd like to tell you how I decide, how I reached out to you for this podcast, how this whole relationship began. So I was in Argentina, actually, mm-hmm. and I was trying to figure out who I wanted to get to next, and it was all about this timeline. And all the, all the fingers just kept pointing back at you. So Charles says, get on Facebook. I'm, I, look him up on Facebook. And he was actually on the, in, in bed going through all your photos. That sounds bad. But he was sitting there going through all the photos of all of these amazing anglers who you fished with. And I go onto Rod Harrison's Facebook page, and there is this bearded, gruff, <laughs> <laughs> kind of scary-looking bloke. And I thought, oh, God, he's going to tell me to pound sand. Yeah. So I sent you this email, and then I waited... And then we finally spoke on the phone for the first time. And you were just like a gentle giant. I couldn't stop gushing about it to, to everybody I spoke to. That conversation turned into another. And I mean, shit, I feel like we talk every couple of days now. And mm-hmm. you just are one of the sweetest, kindest men I've ever met. But on Facebook, you use that to get your point across, damn it. You know, I'm not schizo. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, people do think that I'm an ogre, and that suited an me. An ogre? An ogre, okay. yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's great. That suited me fine, you know, being an ex-cop, you know. I uh, People are very judgmental straight up. Yeah. So I sort of jump on the higher ground. Uh, I, I think you, you place a lot of value, integrity, pride. I like to be a, you know, if there's going to be something said about me is that... Uh, I've done it right. I've done, you know, tried to be true to myself, mm-hmm. irrespective of what the consequences are. And that's probably cost me a lot in, in the commercial world. People don't touch me because I don't kiss asses. Right. And I will tell them. Yeah. And so I, I never, uh, and I'm aware of this totally, and it's, it's the way I'd want it. I've never ridden, risen to the great heights commercially. But by the same token, I haven't seen anyone there that I couldn't handle with a fishing rod or out the back, you know. So I think we've bred a mob of uh, sissies, soft-handed <laughs> bloody sissies. Do you, I mean, you obviously have a very strong stance when it comes to politics. Absolutely. And what would you like to see happen in Australia that maybe isn't happening right now? Well, people be... 
be um, have a have a sense of right and wrong, not only with people but with the environment. And you can't get at the left side of politics, uh, uh, soft and green and look after things. But their their people policies just don't make sense. Mm-hmm. You know, do the crime, do the time. Uh, but you know, some things are sacrosanct and stop cashing in natural resources. You can rob people with a fountain pen, you can rob them with a gun. And and, and these, you know, with blue-collar crime and these bloody political deals and they get the nod here. And, you know, this is all our heritage, you know, and it's just being cashed in bit by bit by bit. And uh, the majority of the people are happy. They live an urban existence, have a little box on the hill and, you know, drive to work and traffic jams and get a pay rise and have a legalised dose of violence every weekend, a.k.a. football. And uh, that's their lot. To encapsulate all that, uh, get back to basics, get back to your roots, but you've got to know where they are in the first place. Okay. Maybe you could explain to me your viewpoint on braided line. Yeah, I've sure. seen a couple of posts and, and I'm genuinely confused about... Uh, I'll send you... I, I've written a book on braids. What are so, the advantages to the braid over... or to braid over monofilament? Well, okay, no, no, no stretch. Well, that's not quite right. It has, it has a minimum of stretch, a little bit. So you have better contact uh, with the fish. Uh, it's thinner, uh, so you have less uh, uh, pressure on it. Uh, you can fish deeper. It's uh, stronger, so the the paradigm with rods has changed, you know, conventional rods. In a fly fishing sense, it's effectively double the capacity of your reel with backing. That's the thing. So you don't need something in the radius of a bicycle wheel, yeah. you can get away with something uh, a, a bit smaller. Right. And uh, But for, for ordinary general fishing, you have that feel and, and you have you can fish deeper. You can, it's just opened up a lot of other areas that weren't there uh, beforehand. So anyone fishing, will you have better lure action, you know, you have a more direct path without any rubber band affecting uh, the mono. Right. Um, yeah, they're compelling reasons, and, and, and once tried, usually there's no going back to mono, so mm-hmm. the um, lure fishing community, by and large, has transitioned into braided lines, but it also has uh, a lot of properties that people don't understand, you know, but... Uh, overriding all that, I mean, uh, people say, "Oh, you've got to tie special knots and all that." But you know, once you get into that, uh, there's more knots. I use one of my little homilies. There's more knots around than what you'll untangle from a Roman orgy. <laughs> oh, that's horrible. <laughs> I know. I know. Oh, that's but, excellent. But, I love it. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so worst case scenario with that, with 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 that. A braid is fifty percent knot strength, right. which uh, doesn't uh, yeah, match up well against the hundred percent you get in mono. But to to combat that, the manufacturers already double the breaking strain of a line. 
So if it says 20 pound braid, it's effectively the unknotted tensile shrinks 40 pound. So worst case scenario, bad knot by someone who can't tie their bootlaces up properly, <laughs> you're still getting what's on the spool. Right. So then there's a lot of hoo-ha about that. Uh, <clears throat> you've got to underfill the reels. You have to keep slack, prevent slack line. Uh, watch tip wraps. There are a few little tricks, but by and large, anglers have learnt this line management. They've learnt a few uh, little things and keep a watch out for them, and, you know, it, it all works. Can you explain something to me about tension? Just thinking about tricks here. I made the mistake of hooking into my first marlin on the fly and tightening my drag. When somebody screamed out, adjust your drag, I just thought, tighten my drag. And now I learn that I need to be loosening my drag. Can you explain to people who have never done this before how this works? Yeah, well, sure. You, you, the, the primary thing is to hook the fish up first. So you have a sharp hook primarily, then you have a hooking arrangement in the fly that facilitates that. Some people like dual hooks, two's better than one. I prefer just one hook. Is that so that their mouths don't get pinned shut together? Yeah, no, no, just sort of, you know, uh, increases. Uh, you've got two hooks down there, so you double, on paper at least, you've doubled your chances of hooking the fish. Right, so you prefer two hooks? No, one, one. Why? Uh, one hook, well, two hooks work against each other. One might be almost in, and the other one catches and... Yeah, it's, an, it's a no-go. Right. Whereas I, I'll use a, not, not a conventional fly hook where there's no set, I'll use one with an offset and with a turned-up eye, so snooze the, the line onto the hook. Right, okay. With a little set in it. Yep. And see when the fish... And also, you position the fish before you make the cast. Tease him up, whip the teaser out, don't cast in front of him because you will not get a or hook up with a head-on shot, or it's very difficult. He's chasing it, trying to hit it with his thing, and you're running out of retrieve. Right. Uh, throw it behind him when the teaser's thing. He'll turn around. Oh, there it is. And he'll hit it straight going away. So you, you, you have... Uh, uh, you, you, is the fish is going the other way, accelerating. Right. And you actually do a strip strike. You just sort of break the line. Don't, don't try and use the, the rod... That way, what happens, and lots of people will, will do this, trout fishermen, what happens that the, the tip actually, the bend actually locates in the tip of the rod and the pressure goes down. Mm-hmm. You think about that, you reckon you're, you're, you know, dislocating its jaw and crossing its eyes. Actually not, you can pull the hook against your hand. I mean, it's size 22 trout fly, yeah, that works with trout. You have to be able to pick up a lot of line in a hurry to 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 set the hook right but that doesn't work with uh with uh, saltwater fish and they don't sit there waiting i mean trout will take <laughs> and sit there and you, you have plenty of time to to do things so i throw the fly beyond the marlin right. so that it turns and oh gotcha he's swimming away so you're, you're clearing you're clearing your loose line, you'd be amazed how long they'll hang on to it. And then uh, break the line. And the, the when way you say break the line, you mean... Hand, your hands. Slow it down, right, okay. Yeah, just... And the, the way to max out a fly rod is to flex it through its entire length. 
don't see. Once you raise the tip up, the bend locates in the tip, and there's not a lot of pressure there. But if you put, like tarpon fishing, if you flex it right down into the butt and you're going sideways, yeah. that's serious pressure. I've even started doing that when I'm fighting steelhead. Yeah. I hold my rod to the side like I'm tarpon fishing. Yeah, yeah, it, it works. You bet. That fish gets landed in no time. Absolutely, yeah. But where does the drag come into play? Why why loosen up? Well, you you I have about two pound drag to start with. The fish takes the fly line. I mean it's gonna run a couple of hundred yards. You so, don't I mean there's no snags there, but you, yeah. you're not trying to stow, stonewall it. it it's uh you know, there's a big ocean there. Let the thing run, yeah. let it jump and do its acrobatics. Because that's burning up energy all the time. Right. So there's already drag from having all your fly line out in the open ocean. Yeah, that's that's right. It's a big drogue. Okay. If you're going to call yourself a specialist in the sport at all, what would you, if I were to force you to choose something that you're great at, what do you think it would be? Probably doing your best. Because, you know, there was a mountain to climb. Uh, I've climbed it. I'm happy, and and uh, yeah, sure. I enjoy the the recognition. I, it, it sort of crept up on me. I didn't think too much about it, but you know, all of a sudden it's uh, slowly dawning on me. I better watch my tongue. People tell me I've been role models, and I've been this and that, and um, I just wanted to do my best, you know, and and uh, but. There's a satisfaction that comes from that that, that shivers, you know. I'm, oh, I've done all this stuff, uh, you know, and and uh, haven't blotted the copy book too much. I'll be a son of a bitch sometimes if I get something gets in my head. You know, I'm not always right, but you know, we all have our foibles. But uh, you know, I was very lucky because um, I never. Great shakes as a caster, and you know, I mean, uh, but you know, like things. I caught the first billfish I cast at the first tarpon and the first permit. Jeez, well, I can't say that. <laughs> yeah, true. And I think, what's the big deal? But great. Oh uh, man. I didn't mean. I didn't mean to trivialise it, but that's. Uh, so I, 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 I'm kind of perceived. I, I'd like to be perceived not so much as a. Uh, a, a perfectionist and pedantic and uh, this is that and you know I'm just a pretty rough around the edges just just go and do it what's next for Rod Harrison is a fiction yeah a, 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 f- a fiction work yeah uh, I hope I've it's based on a, Australia uh, the central character is a uh, from the you know, the age of a dinosaur is this massive big crocodile. And, uh, people don't know how long crocodiles live, um, how big they get to, because recorded history predates, uh, well, postdates the lifespan of the current generation. Mm-hmm. And, and it could be that some uh, slip through the cracks and live a full life potential. But anyway, this animal is, um, it hatches. You know, I'm going to do a narration version of it. You know, and again, deep within the deep within the nest, an eggshell cracked. Yes. Da, da, da. So, so anyway, anyway, yeah. And there's this cavalcade of characters, lots of Australiana uh, events 
uh, which I've tried to weave in, and then I want to sell it in the US, so I've invented this character from the Civil War. And, and there was lots of people, when the gold ran out in California, lots of Americans emigrated to Australia, thousands of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there's that, you know, drift down into the antipodes, and I've kind of picked a character there and follow it through and generation by generation and you know, done the sleaze of Sydney underbelly and the dust and grit and grandeur of the outback and they all get together, characters come and go, some get killed, some live on. Right. Uh, the, the main um, characters are a woman, uh, undercover cop. Uh, she's, you know, svelte, six foot in her sneakers Trouble in a 36C, they're all trying to get into her pants, but she's too smart for them. Yeah. And the other is an Aboriginal uh, who educated in a white world. So he can drift between, he's not in denial about his Aboriginality, but he can drift between the dream time and real time if he wants to. Right. And uh, they come together, not romantically, but they come together, uh, their lives blend and that ends up on this river. In the meantime, this uh, crocodile is minding its own business, eating any people. You know, if they come near its environment, even a lick and a promise by the water's edge, boom, gotcha. So I'm kind of... uh, uh, I don't like the media, the way they sensationalise bloody things and and distort it and that. So this is my little bit of comeuppance for them. (laughs) It's been super entertaining so far. I I can't wait to keep reading it. Well, thank you, thank you. Is there anything that you would like to add or that you would like to ask me? Uh, well, yeah, I, I guess it's a man's world. What the hell's the Sheila doing in it, in it <laughs> and doing it so damn well? Oh, thank you. You know what? My talent is just like yours. I just really love it and nothing's going to stop me. Way to go. <laughs> well, rock on. Props to you. That concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you so much for listening. Please take a quick moment to leave a review on iTunes. 